rural areas are suffering because of this concentration of agriculture. We have become maybe too good at production agriculture. It's becoming to the point where the margins are such that you have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, getting bigger and bigger and bigger has implications. We have some great conversations on Farm to Table Talk, and sometimes I hear from listeners who wish that they could talk back, that they have questions, and they'd like to offer some of their opinions to some of our guests. Well, now you're going to have more opportunities to do just that. Farm to Table Talk hosts a weekly room on Clubhouse, the social audio app for iOS and Android users where many of your favorite podcast guests will be dropping in to answer your questions and hear your ideas. Just download the Clubhouse app and find the Farm to Table Talk Club so you can join in the weekly conversations and keep listening to our Farm to Table Talk podcast. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk has talked to people at land-grant universities. Oftentimes, they're like animal scientists, ag economists, other people that are involved in agriculture that, that we've had on. Today, I'm really happy to welcome somebody who is a social scientist and Dr. Sylvia Secchi from the University of Iowa. Really happy to have you on, Dr. Secchi. Welcome to the Farmer Table Talk. Really happy to be here. You know, I've heard people lately speaking about social science, and you never hear that. I mean, I've been around agriculture for years, and I've been in several panels and discussions and seeing people saying, you know what, it's about time that we turn to the social science. We have economists, obviously agriculture economists, that can look at farm programs and what the impacts are for farmers. We have animal scientists, we have agronomists, we have all these people that can deal with production and marketing. But a lot of the, of the issues we run into, um, again, some say fall more within social science. And, and I got to ask you about that because I've got a couple of things in particular that I want to wade into. I was noticing when you and I were communicating about having a podcast, which I'll jump ahead and say that was motivated in part because I saw you making comments about the new USDA regulations, congressional action about sequestration. And you were, I would say skeptical, but I'll let you say whether or not that's the, the, the right word or not. But we're going to get into that. But before that, when we were communicating, sending emails back and forth, you had an interesting thing I'm going to read here. It said at the bottom on your email, it said, it is especially the social sciences, economics, sociology, and political science which, if prosecuted with vigor, reveal answers which are unpalatable to special interest. 
And it was attributed to T.W. Schultz. And I'm not sure, I don't know T.W. Schultz either. But that's that's really intriguing. Sylvia, I think quite apart from just the conversation we're having, that really caught my attention. And apparently is something that is important to you or you wouldn't put it on your emails. That's right. This is actually one of my favorite stories of all times. So I'm going to give you a very short synopsis of it. Okay. T.W. Schultz was an agricultural economist at my alma mater, Iowa State University, during the Second World War. And he uh, he had a team of people who were not just economists. There were all sorts of um, uh, what we at the time were called home economists. Uh, lots of women um, had jobs in academia uh, in the area of home economics. And one of the people on his team wrote a pamphlet, pamphlet number five, saying that margarine was as good as butter, which was scarce during the war. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we should use more margarine and less butter um, because butter had other uses, uh, better uses. Um, and the dairy industry, as you can imagine, was not really keen on that pamphlet. And so uh, T.W. Schultz um, had to leave the university. There was a, there's a long story about the dean of the College of Agriculture and the head of the experimental station at Iowa State, the president of Iowa State at the time meeting with the dairy industry. It made Time Magazine, it made the page, front page of the Des Moines Register multiple times. Uh, so uh, T.W. Schultz left Iowa State and wrote a scathing letter in, that was published by the Des Moines Register um, saying, you know, the sentiment of that statement that is at the bottom of my email signature. And what he said is very dear to my heart because I am still in Iowa. I'm at um, the University of Iowa. And I feel that I work for all Iowans, not just Iowans involved in agriculture. And so I have to think about the interests of all Iowans and actually the people downstream from us, all the way down to Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so T.W. Schultz, I'll tell you the happy ending to this story, went on to become a professor at the University of Chicago, one of the most preeminent universities in the world for economics. Mm -hmm. and he won the Nobel Prize for economics. And he found out he had won the Nobel Prize for economics while in Ames, Iowa, at his old university where he had gone to give a talk. So it's a very, very instructive stories about the political economy of farming in the United States and in Iowa specifically, where I have spent uh, more than half of my adult life. So. Well, I've actually spent some time in Iowa, and I've worked on committees and have gone to Iowa. And as as you know, Iowa State is the land-grant university in the state. And um, so it gets all those agricultural programs and the extension service and so forth. And the University of Iowa is not, not usually 
I think, recognized as having an interest in agricultural issues, at least to the outsiders. And and we're about to prove that you certainly are an exception to that perception. It's a different issue. And the other thing I think that I notice in Iowa and probably in many agricultural states, there is a strong interest in increasing production, lower cost, and probably supporting scale. But I see a lot of interesting dynamics coming out of Iowa that's not just get big or get out. Uh, there's been movements that are certainly, you know, towards sustainability and to what they might call right-sizing. I've heard of groups in Iowa that are saying, look, I've had it. I don't want to just keep getting bigger and bigger equipment and having to farm 3,000 acres to, to survive. And they're trying to find some different ways and looking at different crops and so forth which I think is kind of counter to what the traditions have been uh, of, you know, get big or get out. And it must be interesting from your perspective, literally sitting to the side of over at um, Iowa City, looking back at Ames and all of these dynamics, and yet being able to jump in with papers and conferences and studies and research and tweets and blogs some must view what you are, your skepticism on some of these things that you just don't jump in and support whatever is kind of, you know, the, the common kind of, here's what we're for. We're, this is a great thing for agriculture. I'm talking around in circles here, but I'm just trying to kind of position this an interesting perspective uh, and uh, explain that. I think you know, from where you sit and your program at the University of Iowa and as a social scientist, how do you kind of keep an eye on these things happening in agriculture and then weigh in and make people scratch their head and say, oh, well, maybe this isn't quite what we're hearing? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of uh, things that are uh, relevant to this question, which is a great question, by the way. One is, as you were saying at the very beginning, social science is important, right? And so I think that, uh, again, going back to I work for all Iowans, uh, rural areas are suffering because of this concentration of agriculture. We have become maybe too good at production agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so what is happening specifically in Iowa that has a very, very simple production model, much simpler than you guys have in agriculture in, in California way simpler. We have two crops, right? And half of our corn goes to ethanol and the rest of the corn and a lot of our soybeans go, go to feed particularly pigs. We produce one third of all the pigs in the United States. Mm -hmm. And all our pigs and 15% of US eggs are produced in Iowa. They're all in confinement. So we have a very, very simple system. And as you were saying, We'll be, it's becoming to the point where the margins are such that you have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, getting bigger and bigger and bigger has implications on our landscape in terms of school consolidations, for example, um, effects on our water quality, and then on cleaning up that water for people to drink, right? In the smaller um, towns of the state that are losing tax base, that are losing population. So I think that... Um, this production model that the land grant system has um, really uh, uh, been fantastic at is becoming so um, overwhelming. It's like a wave that is affecting 
all the rest of people's lives in the state. And so refining a balance, as you were saying, all those examples that you were giving and thinking about a more diverse landscape, maybe bringing some animals back to pasture, uh, favoring uh, smaller farms. You know, one of the problems we have in Iowa is if you don't have land, because land is so expensive, you can't farm. And so the younger generations is actually working more in these CAFOs if they want to farm because they don't have enough money to buy land. And so favoring beginning farmers, smaller operations, maybe smaller meatpacking plants. We have a big problem with that in America, right? And oligopolies when it comes to um, our um, meatpacking, um, the meatpackers. Uh, this is something that uh, would improve not just the livelihood of farmers for generations to come, but also other people who live in rural Iowa. I don't know if you noticed uh, Europe's been making some announcements on what they're going to try to do on climate change lately. And I just saw a paper just recently that kind of surprised me, uh, but they were really promoting more livestock except smaller scale and smaller farms and integrating livestock back into the farming operations. And some people wouldn't have expected that. They thought there might be some of an anti-animal, anti-meat kind of mentality. But in fact, it was quite the opposite. And looking at things, they said, you know what, we probably need to have smaller scale. We need to be able to have more of these kind of farming operations that livestock are a part of it. And they're not quite, you know, as large as they've been. Um, And as you were just saying, it's the kind of thing that you hear coming in different parts of the United States now as well. Yeah, I think that what it will require is to rethink uh, how our Uh, policies work, our subsidy system right now really favors large operations in the Midwest, conventional growers, right, of things like corn and soybeans. So we'll have to uh, really favor uh, this uh, diversification. And then it goes back to uh, this issue of uh, farming for carbon, carbon sequestration, ecosystem services, and so on and so forth. I know there's people that probably their eyes are glazing over whenever we start bringing up subsidies because it's so confusing. But one thing that's kind of disguised in a way that the subsidies today, especially corn and soybeans and and a couple other crops, are primarily uh, so-called insurance programs. But they are, in fact, almost, you know, guarantee an income. And it's... uh, it takes a while to figure it out. But there is this lot of support. And you bring up something which really triggered my initial contact to you, too. And that is about some of these new programs that are supposed to be moving us towards better sustainability and control of greenhouse gases and get agriculture involved in, in the role. And uh, USDA, as a result of um, agreements in Congress, are going to be certifying people that can um, can give, uh, I guess, certifying the uh, the carbon sequestration and and abatement, and so that people can actually be able to be paid for uh, sequestration and, and credits and so forth. And I was doing a lousy job of articulating that, but maybe uh, you can feel free to clean that up for me, but then also uh, explain why you were saying not so fast. This is not all it's cracked up to be. So, uh, I think the, a good place to start would be that the current subsidy system really favors Midwest agriculture to the detriment of places like California, where you're at, right? right. So Iowa is 
the biggest recipient of federal subsidies, even though California is the biggest agricultural producing state in the country, right? right. So we are favoring this uh, large-scale grain production uh, with these subsidies that reduce the costs. And so that's why we have all these pigs in Iowa, because then we have to dispose of this grain somewhat, right? Mm -hmm. So what... Um, the kind of activities uh, that uh, are going to be paid for for their carbon sequestration are activities that are associated with this associated with this production system, not really growing trees um, or really planting grasses, but uh, doing things like a no-till on on annual uh, crops or planting cover crops which are only annual activities. So if you want to get their benefits in terms of carbon sequestration, you have to be, keep doing them, keep doing them, keep doing them. And you keep doing them for crops that use a lot of fossil fuel energy. To grow corn takes a lot of fossil fuels. You have to dry the corn. You have to use fertilizer that um, uses a lot of natural gas. Mm -hmm. and so my concern is that instead of rethinking more structurally about the system, as we were just saying, bringing animals back to pasture, favoring a smaller differentiated operations, we're going to subsidize these really large conventional corn producers uh, and not really make a dent in terms of climate change. The thing I wonder about is that most of them are doing this already. I mean, it's made sense for them to go to minimum or no-till and cover crops are pretty, pretty widely accepted. So so you're kind of adding another cash crop, but I'm not sure how the behavior is is greatly changed because of it. So this is a really big concern when it comes to all these carbon payments. It's something that people talk a lot about. It's what we call additionality. Are these activities new activities that are increasing carbon sequestration, or are they things that farmers were going to do Anyway, particularly, you know, if energy prices are high, then you go to no-till because it saves you money uh, in terms of like your, your diesel costs, right? So uh, the, the, it's not uh, really clear that this is a, the, the most cost-effective way to spend public money if we want to promote uh, a more climate-resilient and, and, and uh, more climate change mitigation in agriculture. And this is my big concern that we really haven't done a overall assessment of whether this is the way to spend our taxpayers' dollars. We're just thinking, oh my goodness, let's just pay uh, farmers to do no-till. The thing that happens with no-till is farmers will do no-till for like three years, which is the length of these contracts. And then they'll be like, the field is a mess. There's all this stuff I need to till. And they will till and all that carbon will go puff in the atmosphere. Yeah. So you will lose those benefits. This is another issue we call that permanence. So we have issues with permanence and additionality of these um, uh, activities that are a real concern to me. And I, uh, I really do not want to see public money squandered under the guise of carbon sequestration, but it's really another subsidy for already too large farming operations uh, and, and not moving us the right way. Yeah, because I think that is what I came out of looking at your material and your reports and your blogs and so forth, was that was the bottom line, is that this is just another subsidy. This is taking the large-scale agriculture. And, and, and I, if I recall, 
You made a reference to the fact that it's possible the cap and trade could work, but this is no cap. And that then and if all you do is de- declare a value, unless there is some sort of forced cap, you know, you, you really don't have a market that can make a difference with sustainability. That's right. So this is like the kind of like 300 pound gorilla. They talk about these carbon markets, but there really is no market because a market to exist starts with scarcity. Right. And so in these environmental markets, how do you create the scarcity? The government creates and puts a cap on pollution levels. Right. And then it says, OK, you can't go be, be um, uh, uh, above this cap, but you can trade. Well, there is no cap. Now, in California, it's a different story. But at the federal level, there is no cap. And so these payments are kind of like really funny money uh, that uh, is only gets real for farmers. You know, you're right. We do have cap and trade in California and uh, there's, it could do, it could be better. When I talk to farmers, I mean, some are finding some ways to take advantage of, of the cap and trade market um, and that it would be capping certain levels. So there are processing plants and others that have to uh, have to purchase some credits to offset when they exceed their cap. So there, there is a market. One of the things I've mentioned that we have in California, um, so much permanent crops and really the trees should be getting credit, but they're not. And so I think that's one of the shortcomings because when you keep planting trees and, and what they're, they're doing, if they're going to have it, they should be giving some credit for the, for the trees, but we don't, we don't. So that's, there's areas that it can certainly, certainly improve. So, well, you can take that up with carb. That's, you know, the practices that are certified are, you know, decided. And, and I think that's where the conversation should be, by the way, is more permanent, right? Solutions right. like planting trees. So you must have been really popular in Iowa because here's something that these uh, Iowa farmers, which make a big share of agriculture today, will be getting increased benefits if this works like they intended to. Uh, and you're, you're, you're coming out and saying, not so fast. This isn't, again, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So do you, do you get some cheers and some boos both from taking these positions? Uh, yes, yes, I do. And, uh, you know, I'm a big girl and I can take it, uh, you know. So uh, I, I think that that's part of the, uh, I think that's part of the conversation we need to have, frankly. I think that we can't, my big concern about this is that climate change is real. And it's affecting all sectors of the economy. It's affecting all states, right? And so we can't keep doing more of the same. We really need to have uh, meaningful policies in all sectors of the economy, including agriculture. And I kind of feel like the the way this is shaping up to be is agriculture, again, is going to be given a bit of a pass and not really doing the job that's going to be required uh, you know, from other um, for, from other industries. Well, and particularly the agriculture that you're talking about, the benefits the most from it is the large scale, more industrial size kind of uh, types of of operations, which have other issues. The others that you're describing, the medium size, the small, the local, the other kind of right sizing people trying to work with other commodities and other crops rather than just corn and soybeans are somewhat left out of of all of this. So when you see these things, you can write a blog about them. You can write an editorial. You can post tweets uh, about them. 
But in some respects, it kind of feels like the horse is out of the barn, uh, you know, because already you've got something like this that people were just relieved to have something to talk about. So you end up having many agricultural organizations just praising it uh, because it's going to be benefiting, they believe, benefiting farmers. You've got congressmen and your senators that are standing up and saying, gee, this look what I'm doing for farmers and sustainability. Is there a chance to slow these things down? Or once they hit the press conference stage, uh, I mean, is it too late for people to get a wake-up call and say, gee, Dr. Secchi made me think about this. Maybe we should slow down and, and approach this differently. Well, that is, again, that's a very good question. Um, I would say to you, I don't know if you have kids. I have two kids, right? They don't learn things the first time, right? Uh, I also teach undergrads, and their saying goes that you have to repeat things seven times yeah. for them to really percolate, right? right. So I am not expecting, uh, you know, immediate results. I am maybe not even expecting results uh, uh, in the in the short term. I would say that we have a farm bill coming up. And we also have the expiration of the renewable fuel standard in 2022. And so I think it's important to have these conversations out here. And, you know, I am not, um, I'm, I'm not alone in some of my concerns. There's um, uh, non-for-profit organizations like the Environmental Working Group that have been very critical of these uh, carbon markets. I, I, I call them carbon markets between inverted quotes because there's no cap. So I think that um, having other voices not not let up on the issues that are associated with these proposals is important so that we don't, you know, we, they're still at the table. No, I think it's great that you're drawing attention to these questions. And I know this isn't the only one. I, I was looking online and you've, you see a, a number of different issues that are going on. Do you, do you keep focused on, on food and agriculture and rural programs in particular? So I would say that, uh, you know, as I was telling you at the beginning, I, um, I work uh, uh, in, in the Midwest and I consider myself a geographer of place. So what I am really interested in is all these human environmental issues as they pertain to where I live. So one of the other areas of interest that I have is, for example, flood mitigation. You guys in, in uh, uh, California uh, can understand that uh, and that the how to address water quantity issues and other problem you guys have in California in the face of climate change. And so this is all, you know, how do people live in land and water in ways that are more sustainable in the face of climate change? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, the, the whole water issues and water quality issues are, are a big concern. I think back on the days that I actually lived in Iowa and we had a uh, uh, a baby, and we were probably making formula out of the water that was sourced out of the Raccoon River, which was becoming somewhat notorious for quality issues. And I think back on that, and I think, gee, I wonder whether even that many years ago, whether there was there were concerns that we should have had at that time. Um, the Des Moines Water Works is uh, kind of like the best water treatment um, uh, plant in the world because they have had to address all these issues. So I don't think that you need to worry on that score. Now, what is really interesting about the raccoon is that it, there is this, uh, you know, long-term data on how much, uh, how many nitrates are coming 
uh, from the raccoon because of the agriculture that happens upstream. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing quantity problems with the raccoon. And so actually the Des Moines Waterworks is moving towards using groundwater and no longer surface water because they're afraid there's not going to be enough water coming um, from, from the Des Moines and the Raccoon River. So I think these are the kind of concerns that really motivate my work. And, you know, you guys in California have had these problems for way longer than we have, and you know how serious they are, right? So these are not speculations or, you know, kind of like one side political issues. These are based on the evidence we've seen that we're going to have problems meeting water quantity and water quality uh, targets and goals to keep our populations healthy and our crops viable. You know, I've been going into the clubhouse and we've been having conversations on clubhouse with people around the world and water, both safety and the quantity is really an issue all over the world. I mean, I say that now, and you're still in an area that doesn't get water when you want it necessarily. In fact, that's part of the issue uh, that you might get over 40 inches of rain in much of the much of the Corn Belt, but increasingly it's coming at an unhandy times, and you're not in the habit of storing it, which is one easy solution we've got in California. We get it, we get enough water; it just doesn't come in the, the year we need it. I want to go back to the fact that you are a social scientist. And explain this Department of Geographical Sciences. I get that. I've heard of geographical before. But sustainability sciences in there, you know, relatively new for universities to be, you know, incorporating sustainability into the into the departmental names. I, last couple decades, you know, it's not a it's not something that goes back years and years. In your department, does it have uh, does it have functions that are kind of extension type functions too, which is primarily what we see with land grant universities of 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 service and outreach to the communities that that you're studying? So yes, I would say that uh, we in our department there is, and more broadly at the university, uh, we have both the, the sustainability moniker really has an educational component. So we have a new, for example, sustainability science major uh, in which I'm very deeply involved in which we study actually the kind of things we were just talking about, how all these systems are, um, you know, uh, connected with each other, right? And how you have these human systems, these nat natural systems and economic systems and how to achieve a balance, right? between these various systems across geographical scales. So you can also see the geography part of this. Yeah. We also have, for example, a sustainability office that is very active on, uh, on, on uh, campus and locally. Our students are really um, uh, encouraged to be part of the community. And so we have a lot of externships and internships and activities that they do. And so even though we don't have the traditional um, extension, uh, kind of like a, a mission. We do a lot of outreach. So, uh, you know, and, and, and the things we study, again, are really things, things that are important to our communities. Let me give you a, a really uh, short example of this. I Just before you called, I was uh, working on the results of a survey that uh, I have got back from... Um, 
women farmers that I'm working on a project with a, a colleague, and we're looking at stress in women farmers because you won't be surprised if I tell you that when people have historically looked at stress, they've mostly looked at men's stress. You need to really send the survey to women to get to them, right? And so this is Iowa women farmers. They are now, you know, um, uh, almost half of the uh, farm population, depending on the definition you use, depending on the USDA definition you use. And they're involved in a lot of land use decisions in the state. And our farming population in the U.S. and in Iowa is aging. So there are concerns related to their mental health and their physical health and how they're handling you know succession planning managing this ever large farmer or farms right so this is the kind of thing that the work that we do here and we have a medical school and a college of public health right so we're very involved in making sure that people in iowa are healthy in many in, in all possible ways you know there's that i mean that sounds wonderful and i think that people aren't having a hard time figuring out how to maximize their yields per acre but they are dealing with local issues i mean like you said earlier so people are saying can we kind of right size can we get other commodities can we be able to deal with people that you know have issues can we deal with waste can we deal with the local processing plant uh, you know, food hubs and so forth. I wonder where the extension service is pretty much an extension of the land grant university. And you've got extension offices in almost every county in, in the United States. I'm not sure where they're not. Um, and increasingly, though, they're being called on to deal with social issues that deal with uh, organization, uh, that deal with empowering people, with, with helping them solve some problems that at the community level and being catalyst for change. I wonder if... Someday we'll be seeing social scientists like your students and yourself out in every county in America as social scientists um, when what previously was just agriculture extension. I think that is that that's actually a really uh, uh, great insight. And I think that again, um, you know, sometimes I joke with my uh, engineering colleagues that really the social sciences are the hard sciences, right? Because the problems that we have to solve uh, in, in a lot of communities in, in uh, places like Iowa, but also in places like Wisconsin, Ohio, you know, the rural communities are really struggling. They have less resources. You know, it's, it takes longer to get to the hospital. The schools are consolidating. So the kids have to travel longer to go to school, right? Um, when I used to live in Illinois, I lived in a smaller community and we had to go to St. Louis to see specialists oftentimes, you know. So you have all these issues that are uh, more issues of distribution of resources and social uh, problems that we really are going to have to grapple with in America in the 21st century because we we have this uneven distribution of resources across space and, uh, of course, across genders and across racial and ethnic lines that we need to address. Well, you know, you say that about like in, in Illinois, and I know farmers in Illinois that travel to Iowa City because of the special, um, you know, when they have health issues. 
they're, they're, they're world renowned for eye issues and several, several other specialties at the University of Iowa. So you're, you're really covering, you know, four or five, six states of the region that, that they'll, they come into Iowa city. But anyway, I'm just really intrigued by, by this idea that as a social scientist, that add looking at these issues, that it's, it's more than just applying the science to, again, affect yield and saying, you know, we can do this, we can do that. You can machinery, you can solve this problem because these are all people problems. Everything we've got are people problems, and especially as you try to bring it into action at the, at the local level. So, um, so I'm, I'm excited about what you're doing. Um, you, you make me want to come back to school. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, well, yeah. I, one thing I have to say is, you know, um, University of Iowa is a research one institution. We have this amazing medical school and the dentistry and the, what we have all this, but we also are very driven by our education mission. And so I, and, and I love to teach. And so what I, one of the things I love to do is this kind of conversation we're having right now is what I bring to the classroom. I bring place-based education so that the students can think about real problems. You know, most of our students are from our region, right? So, so from Illinois to Minnesota uh, to Missouri. And so they, they really understand what we face and we think how these various systems can work more justly and more effectively for everyone. You just can't make ends meet, you know, with, with what's available. Absolutely. And I can tell you that one of the other things to consider is healthcare costs. You know, if you're a farmer, you know, that's why so many people have off-farm jobs is because you, you're, you're like health insurance is a huge, huge problem in rural America, right? Yeah. And so that also affects your capacity as a family uh, to work on a farm. So these are, again, we're going back to how these systems are related, right? Healthcare is really related to agriculture and production agriculture systems. And, you know, this goes back to uh, what, what, you know, uh, how far you have to travel to find a decent job that will pay health insurance, right? Uh, these are big, big issues we have to address. Well, we're going to have to talk about this again sometime. I'm, I'm really happy that you've been able to spend this time with me on Farm to Table Talk. And I want to give you an opportunity to maybe direct people to finding either papers or reports or uh, tweets or blogs or anything. If they would like to keep track of what you're looking into, what you're learning and what you're communicating, uh, how do people find you? Well, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, my um, handle is at Prof Secchi with two C's, so S-E-C-C-H-I. Um, I also have a Google Scholar profile. My first name is Sylvia, S-I-L-V-I-A. And you can find, I try to publish things open access as much as I can so that people can, uh, you know, I do this for prospective graduate students, but also the public at large. Um, and if you actually... Uh, Google News, my name, you'll find some of the, there was something that came out uh, just yesterday um, from uh, Leah Douglas um, about my thoughts on CRP and CRP um, um, uh, policies that the Vilsack administration is putting in place. Tell them about that acronym, because there's a lot of people listening don't know what CRP is. 
CRP is, stands for Conservation Reserve Program, and it's our biggest land retirement conservation program in a U.S. agriculture. And so farmers can get 10 to 15 years of rental payments if they take that land out of production and plant grasses or trees. And it's being reconsidered in the context of all these uh, carbon markets uh, between inverted commas. Well, and I've heard some conversations that are critical of the CRP program because of absentee owners that can enter a CRP and just park it and not really do anything. And sometimes you do need to do a little upkeep to the land or, you know, consider grazing and some other issues. So uh, I'm looking forward to having conversations on that sometime, too. You know, somewhere along the line with all these things, surely it was motivations beyond greed. Some people probably really have gotten into these programs thinking that they can make a difference, but they need to be tweaked and watched and somebody has to keep an eye on them and, and encourage a conversation that is uh, occasionally critical. And you do that. And I really appreciate your insights. And Sylvia Secchi at the University of Iowa, thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 